My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Joanne Folletta. She's the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra and the Virginia Symphony Orchestra. (laughs) She's conducted over 100 orchestras in North America alone, and more orchestras than you can shake a baton at all over the world. She's a strong advocate for up-and-coming musicians. Her conducting is featured on numerous recordings, including the one you're going to be hearing throughout our show today, and her latest CD with the Buffalo Philharmonic called Built for Buffalo just came out. Joanne Folletta, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you, Daisha. I'm glad to be here. What are you going to be teaching me about today? Well, one of my favorite pieces. This is a piece I've loved since I was a child, and I hope you're going to love it too. It's a piece by Rimsky-Korsakov called Scheherazade. Oh, and yeah. uh, as the name suggests, it's uh, based upon the character from the uh, fairy tale book of Thousand and One Nights. Yeah. Well, I and I want to I want to talk about that because I I love that I guess I don't know what to call it, a collection of stories, but We've never talked about Rimsky-Korsakov on the show, and, and I have absolutely no frame of reference for him as a composer. Can you tell us sure. a little bit about him and sure. why he has two last names? Well, that I can't answer. I've <laughs> just known him as Rimsky, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, so, uh, but a Russian composer from the Romantic period, late 19th century. He wrote this piece in 1888. Um, he's considered one of the greatest orchestrators of all time. And that's like saying uh, someone is the greatest sense of color in the music world. He's able to mix instruments together in a way that no one else could. It's dazzling. I mean, the effects he gets with the orchestra. And that's uh, one of his hallmarks. It's extraordinary music. And uh, an interesting thing about him, too, is that he was a sailor. He had another life as a sailor. And, and traveling the world by ship uh, gave him a very special interest in in uh, different places. So he was very intrigued by the Far East. Oh, and that's I think that's cool. what inspired him to write this. Ah, yeah. I was going to I was going to ask, like, why would someone who's, you know, with a clearly Russian name have all of these Middle Eastern flavors and inspirations? Um, well, you know, it was partly his traveling, but I think that that book was so famous, Thousand and One Nights. It was actually written down in the ninth century. I mean, just like this compendium wow. of legends and fairy tales. But in the 18th century, it had been translated into other languages for the first time. Mm-hmm. And once Europe started to read these stories, they were entranced. I mean, they just this is music. Uh, based on these stories that transports you as they do to a land of enchantment and mm-hmm. their stories of imagination and striking imagery, their uh, marvels of color and drama and love and magic, these really alluring tales. And they appeal to everyone. Uh, everyone reading them in their own language just fell in love with them. And one of the most wonderful aspects of these stories is that um, the 
they empower the oppressed. You know, the people mm-hmm. who who have the sort of least chance to succeed at the end do succeed, mm-hmm. maybe through the power of magic or magic of this thousand and one nights. And so they were extremely appealing to uh, people reading them. And I'm sure Rimsky-Korsakoff felt the same way. It just was wonderful. Well, speaking of those who are least uh, likely to succeed succeeding, we should talk about Scheherazade specifically, who kind of frames yes. this whole group of stories. Well, Can you talk she, about that? she's the hero of the story. And you know, it's it's kind of amazing that in the um, Persian world, I mean, where women really weren't very powerful, uh, she is the one who saves her country and, and uh, changes uh, the um, caliph into someone who no longer is killing people and completely brings an end to his reign of terror. She saves herself, too. She saves herself, too. And she, that's that's the whole premise, yes, right? Is she that does. she is trying to, um, he has like a different woman every night, essentially. Well, yes, you know, that the, the story is that the caliph was deceived by his first wife, and he's never forgiven women. So he's decided to marry a new wife every day, and then kill her in the next the next morning. And you can imagine I mean, the chief courtier who's supposed to be supplying these women is distraught, and the whole the whole country, the kingdom, is distraught. I mean, this is awful. Or oh, they're losing all of these young, beautiful, wonderful young women. Mm-hmm. So the daughter of the courtier Scheherazade, who must be a very feisty young woman, mm-hmm. tells her father, "Send me next time." And of course, he resists. He said, "No, no, no, never." She said, "No, no, send me because maybe." I can stop this. But I think it's it's astonishing that in given the patriarchal nature of the culture, the Persian oh. culture, that she assumes the key role and she does save herself and she saves her country. By telling uh, stories that are so yes. engaging that he, he keeps going, well, what happened next? <laughs> I know, but you know, she's very wise. She's always um, very careful to stop at a particularly good spot. And she tells him, oh, my husband, uh, let's. I'll continue tomorrow. It's late now. And he probably said the first night, well, okay, one more day, and then I'll find out what happens. But she spins these stories for a thousand and one nights. And that's where the title comes from. She just keeps telling him more and more wonderful stories, fairy tales. And she is also very clever because she makes him the hero of some of them, too. I mean, she fashions a person that's just like him who's the hero. So so um, uh, you can imagine that this was something that ignited Rimsky-Korsakov's imagination yeah. about creating a piece of music that would, would tell the story. So do you think you had talked about how when these stories came over to Europe, people were were just gaga about them? Yeah. Was that perhaps why he wanted – was was it born out of that um, sort of popularity and excitement that, that he was maybe inspired to do this? I think so. I th- I'm sure that played a major role. I mean, he knew how much people loved this. And actually, in the, at this time, the the late 19th century, people were really interested in the Far East. It had, had a kind of special mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and even today, it seems like a mysterious place in many ways. But then in the, the 19th century, it was kind of a land of enchantment, a shimmering, magical place yeah. that very few people had ever seen, but um, they imagined how, how wonderful it was. And there's this little poem that I think is so beautiful written by Tristan Klingsor at that time. He talks about Asia. Mm-hmm. Asia, 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 old wonderland of fairy tales where fantasy sleeps like an empress in her mysterious forest. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's uh, how people thought about Asia, that yeah. wild things, wonderful things, magical things could happen there. Not like their life in a little town in Europe, you know, yeah. working away. And um, they just loved it. And of course, you know, the the fact that uh, it was the poor people who, who were, were able to succeed in, in these fairy tales mm-hmm. really appealed to them. And um, then Rimsky went with it. It fed that sense of mystery about about this part of the world that must have seemed so you know without things like the internet and yes. it must have just created yeah. this this incredible place in in their in their minds right so well, they imagined that almost anything could happen in yeah. this this wonderful place that they would never see in reality but they could dream about it yeah well let's let's get to the music and you can walk me through yes. it where, where should we start well, you know, first with the character of Shahrazad and the Sultan or the Caliph, uh, Shahrazad, if people as they listen will will notice is the uh, the violin always the solo violin. The concertmaster tells that story, but the piece opens up with the character of the Caliph, and uh, he's very strong and he's very angry and he's very powerful. You know, he's not he's not a, a warm and friendly man. Uh-huh. So right at the beginning, we hear his character in the music, and here it is. Okay. He sounds like Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely a man in control, this man. So, yeah. so uh, what is wonderful is that uh, Scheherazade is a very young girl. I mean, if we imagine she may be 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, even though she's very brave, she must be terrified at this point, yeah. really terrified. And she starts to tell her story once upon a time. And here she is. First story is the sea and Sinbad's ship, Sinbad the sailor. Uh-huh. And here, Rimsky Korsakov, the sailor, really comes to the fore with music that makes us actually feel like we're on board a ship. Yeah. Do, do you know if he ever like took a trip to the part of the world where the story, these stories, took place? Oh, he or? did. He definitely did. He w- he went all over the world. In fact, we in Buffalo are very very proud that he actually came to Niagara Falls, which is very close to us. Oh, wow. So he was a world traveler, and um, and he knew what it felt like to be on a ship. I mean, he loved to sail. Yeah. And you get the feeling as you listen to this music here that, that you can just feel the swell of the waves and the motion of the ship. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you can hear it.
is very a like literal translation sort of of yeah. characters and he's really he's painting pictures of this music and yeah. and while he doesn't want to limit our imagination um there's enough that's so clear that we can uh, make up our own stories based upon them mm-hmm. i mean there's another story of course Shahrazad every every night is coming up with a continuation or another story um you'll hear now different characters represented by the instruments by the bassoon the oboe the violins okay Okay, this is my attempt at using stuff I've learned on the show. Is this leitmotif that's happening? Yes, you could absolutely say that. This is Shahrazad's okay. motto. This is her leitmotif. Yeah. Uh, and it's her beginning another story. That's okay. how she always begins uh, the story. Okay, I see. All right. Now, here's different characters. The bassoon is a character in the tale. I mean, we could make it up ourselves. Um, and the other instruments then take over the, the story. What's what's this story? Alibaba? Oh, we don't know. Maybe this is Alibaba. We don't know. We, you know, he's not. No, he doesn't know because Rimsky actually didn't want to give too many specifics because he thought it would be much more interesting for the listener to make up his own story. Right. But we know it's some some character in the Thousand and One Nights. Yeah. Another character comes in, the oboe. And he manages to get a kind of, as they used to say, oriental flavor to to everything. So we know it's not something that's happening here where we know it's happening in some far-off land. Right. Can you talk about the instrumentation? You mentioned that he was masterful he was, at using yeah. instruments. He, he was the supreme master of orchestration. I mean, he knew how to use the instruments, how to make them sound great, how to use them in, in ways that really brought them out to the, out to the fore of the orchestra so that, that we hear the oboe solo, we hear the bassoon solo, we hear the violins. They glitter. I mean, he creates a kind of tapestry that's shining and, and, uh, and uh, evocative and glittering, which a lot of composers didn't do, but he's he is using all of his skill in creating this this um, painting for us. Um, and it's it makes for a very, very interesting piece of music, also very challenging for the orchestra, but fun to play and really fun to listen to. It's so light and bouncy, like right here. Then you know he's in the the next example. He's telling yet another story. Uh, she's telling him another story. Shahrazad, the story of the prince and the princess, and this is a, a love a love story where they they find each other and fall in love, and then are separated, and then finally get back together again. So you can hear very clearly the two characters in in the next excerpt. Mm-hmm. This 
may be the most romantic music in the piece. Very. He's working those strings. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, he was a violinist himself, I think, so he really oh. knew how to write for the violin. Cool. He has the, the theme of the prince, and then he's answered by the theme of the princess. It's just beautiful. Oh, that's great orchestration. I mean, he just, just is astonishingly gifted at that. He's, everything is so... Uh, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but it's very uh, mellifluous. Everything flows. Yes. It's very ornate, but it's very... Yeah. You're absolutely right. It flows forward. I mean, he's giving us a wonderful uh, music with presence and, and, and impetus and taking us along with them, you know, on the story. Mm -hmm. But every detail is polished, too, and, mm -hmm. and just surely beautiful. So, so sort of gentle and complex at yeah. the same time. Yeah. And he just called this the prince and the princess and left it to, you know, our own uh, very fertile imaginations <laughs> to think about, you know, their story. I like that he gives the listener sort of space and credit, you know, yes. like sort of um, honors the intelligence of the listener and allows he does. them to fill in you that know, space. You know, at first he had titles for the four movements, and then he requested that in the in the publication that the titles not be put in there because he wanted people to be free. And I think you're right. absolutely right. He had a lot of respect for the audience's uh, intelligence and imagination and and wanted them to to be free yeah that's very cool uh, now the, the the next track um so again we're seeing the sultan and shahrazad together the sultan is still angry you know we, we, we get a little worried too the sultan still seems <laughs> in a bad mood and he's still you know uh kind of fussing about and shahrazad is also anxious too because she's worried i mean she's not she's trying to soothe him so we'll listen to this track we can hear the two of them And Shahrazad responds to him because she's 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 anxious. It's wonderful how he gets different moods in her light motif, as you said. It's uh, the same music mostly, but it's, it sounds quite different. What is that technique that the is it a violinist? Uh, yeah, that they're using where they're bowing two strings at the same time. Yeah, double and triple stops. That, that's very perceptive. They're they're actually playing uh, two or three notes at once, which is quite difficult on the violin. 
But as you heard there, it's it's very impressive. I mean, it's very very exciting to hear that. Yeah, that is the coolest technique. Yeah, it just yeah. gets so much it's, flavor. It's very exciting. Yeah. Now in the final movement, again, we're sort of in the middle of some, you know, frenetic activity. We, you know, it sounds like a chase scene. We don't know what's going on, but we know somebody's in danger and something is about to happen. Yeah. And, and um, then towards the end of it, I mean, Sinbad's a character in this last movement. Um, his ship is caught in a storm. And again, we feel it's tossed about by the waves. It's, you know, really dangerous. Finally, it crashes on a rock and just is destroyed. I mean, the, the whole ship is just goes to pieces. Um, and... Uh, Rimsky-Korsakov said, actually, he wrote in the score that this is the moment when the ship is destroyed that the sultan's heart finally is cracked open and he realizes that after a thousand and one nights, he really loves Scheherazade and would never, ever imagine life without her anymore. Wow. So it's the kind of um, metaphor, I guess, this, this, the big moment when the ship crashes um, that finally the the sultan is able to let go of his anger forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a climactic moment at the end of the fourth movement. His resolve has cracked. Yeah. <laughs> but right now we're hearing this, this great ship tossed about by the waves. Huge waves, you can tell from his writing. There it is. The ship goes to pieces on the rocks. But everything quiets down as if the Sultan has a moment of an epiphany. listen at the very end his theme is being played but it's very gentle we hardly recognize it Shahrazad is happy now this is her final little song Two of them sing together. You hear the Sultan's theme in the low strings, and Scheherazade stays singing on top. 
Here's his theme. It's very gentle now. Wow. And it ends quietly. Shahrazad singing to the very end. And that's the end of our journey. It's a very beautiful tale. <laughs> how long is that high note held? How many bars is that? Oh, it's so many bars. And the, and the concert master, of course, who's playing this very difficult solo, is just playing and bowing up and down, up and down, and, of course, has to keep it perfectly perfectly balanced and smooth uh, on a harmonic. I mean, that ending is very difficult for the concertmaster because Scheherazade is just, she's ecstatic now. I mean, she knows that that uh, she and, and the caliph will be together and that he's changed his ways. And she's singing in the highest register. I mean, she's just floating with joy. And uh, Rimsky writes it beautifully for the, for the violin, but very difficult. The piece is filled with difficult things for the orchestra, but um, difficult in a way that is deeply satisfying to play, a lot of fun to play, and just filled with color and drama. You really feel in the orchestra as you're acting out a play, a yeah. play without words. Yeah. Is that is that what led you to, you've been conducting uh, the Buffalo Philharmonic since 99? Is that mm -hmm. right? And That's right. What, what led you to want to record this piece? Is it just that, that it's... Fun. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, uh, first of all, it was a piece I knew from, from a, for a long time, and I really loved it. It was a story that appealed to me as a child. But what I really wanted to record it, the reason is that it, it was able to show the Buffalo Philharmonic players as all as great soloists, as great individual musicians, and as a great orchestra together. But there's so many, so many great spots for violin, for cello, for oboe, flute, clarinet, trumpet, trombone. So we were able to uh, highlight so many players and um, and I like that because when I hear this I see those players I mean I see their faces I know how they play and it's kind of a document of, of where we were when we made this recording mm -hmm. that's that's really neat it's I love it I love it. That was that was so much fun to go through. I was just smiling. Well, the whole thank time. you. No, know, I'm I'm always fun. It's fun for me to talk about a piece yeah. like this, and you know, music can take you to wonderful places that uh, that are really in your mind. And it, the wonderful thing too, Daisha, is that everybody goes someplace different. I mean, the music is not limiting. Yeah, you go to a place that you find, and uh, you know, 
only only you can take yourself there with music, but but the composer leaves a lot of space to find your own way to your own mm-hmm. special island, let's say. Um, and music is is the bridge. That's always my favorite kind of writing, like when I watch even a TV show or something like that. When the writers, they leave enough room for you to think, or, yes. or you're reading a, a good book, there's the writer trusts you enough to to know certain things and to be able to fill in the blanks with your own imagination. And That's right. You know, and that way it's yeah. different for everybody, which is what I love about music. Uh, since it's not so specific, mm-hmm. um, people get different things from different pieces, and uh, and, it, and they're the only ones who can tell their own story. Yeah. And that, that's a beautiful thing about something like music that is not... not it's not wordy. It's not filled with words and descriptions. The descriptions are are uh, just the beautiful sound around you. Well, speaking of stories, um, before we go, uh, we're we're recording this episode right at the end of Women's History Month, and I, I feel like I would be remiss not to ask you about your story, your experience as a female conductor, which is unfortunately, I think, still sort of a rare thing, isn't it? And you know, it is still still kind of rare, and I'm I'm really kind of surprised about that. I have to tell you, because when I was starting out, I thought, why now there would be just as many women on the podium as men? But it hasn't happened, and it's you know, classical music is a conservative conservative art form. But I feel very lucky. I fell in love with the orchestra when I was about nine years old, and I decided then I had to be a conductor because I wanted to be in the middle of that group. I wanted to be in the middle of that sound. I wanted to be, in a way, a catalyst or somebody who would help all these musicians come together and create something extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to do, and I just persisted, and and I didn't realize that really when I was studying, there weren't many women on the podium at all, and um, I just didn't know that. And my parents were not musicians. They didn't know either, and the first (laughs) I heard of it was when I was 18, and I went to the conservatory, um, and they said, well, you know, this is kind of unusual still that they're not you know, women don't conduct many orchestras, but, you know, like most 18-year-olds, I was not deterred by that. I, I was in love with the orchestra. I, I had to do it, and I'm very grateful to both the Manus College of Music and to the Juilliard School for uh, letting me study there, and uh, that was the beginning of this kind of journey in music, and I feel very, very lucky. I mean, I, th- I think that, um, yes, it's maybe been a little different for women, but I've always made a very strong point of not looking for um, the prejudice, let's say, because mm-hmm. we can always find, all of us can find prejudice if we look for it. But, right. But to be focused on the the great privilege of being involved in this kind of of, uh, of heritage that we have, the symphony orchestra. Mm-hmm. I think there's a wonderful attitude. I mean, I think that, the, you know, like you said, if you look for prejudice, sure, you're going to find it. <laughs> or <laughs> but, imagine it too. Then, you know, you start to, to imagine it and it gets in the way of of your your working. Well, and there's focused. no better way to kill prejudice than to just do an amazing job at what you do. Right, right, you know? right. And uh, stay focused on, on, on what's important. So so I feel lucky. I think if I'd been born even 20 years before, 25 years before, I wouldn't have had the possibility of, of working with orchestras on this level. But yeah. uh, 
But I feel very lucky, and I think certainly things will be easier now for for young women who are entering the field, and and uh, they'll have more they'll have more opportunity. Well, and you're you're working to sort of make sure that that happens. I noticed you were involved in different programs to get I mean, young musicians in general. Yeah. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I yeah. mean, and to keep to keep encouraging young musicians and to keep music in our culture, classical music in our culture, because it's so it is so inspiring. It brings people together, and it keeps us focused on 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 what's beautiful in the world, and that's yeah. very important. Very, I I completely agree. Well, Joanne Folletta, it has been an absolute pleasure. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on the classical Thank classroom. You. Thank you, Desha. I've had a great time talking to you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you'll come back sometime when you want to talk about something else. Thank you. All right. Okay. All right, everybody. That about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom or find us on SoundCloud for a full listing of all of our shows ever. Uh, Also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Uh, Don't forget to follow, rate, and review us because it makes us so very happy. You can also follow us on Twitter and Tumblr and or send me an email at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Twister-Holslander for making us sound nice. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for coming out of his office and staring at me and telling me that he is quote-unquote supervising. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing compound eyes. Thanks to Joanne Folletta for being on the show. Thanks to me for saying words, and thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.